This is the Average Guy Network, and you have found Cyber Frontiers, show number 57, recorded on August 19th, 2019. Here on Cyber Frontiers, we explore cybersecurity, big data, and the technologies that are shaping the future. If you have questions, comments, or contributions, you can always send us an email, jim at theaverageguy.tv. Might be more, uh, it might be faster if you just send it to Christian. He says Christian at theaverageguy.tv, and he does monitor that account. You can find me on Twitter at Jay Collison, and Christian is at Borg Whisperer. The Average Guy.tv course powered by Maple Grove Partners. Get, get secure, reliable, high-speed hosting. From people that you know and you trust, for more information, check out maplegrovepartners.com. Christian, always great to have you back on uh, Cyber Frontiers. Welcome back. Yes, it's good to be back. We were just commenting in the pre-show that we've uh, averaged a ripe uh, two months on the dot. So, you know, not the best in the world, but right. it could be worse. You right. know, June, be out, June so. 19th was the last uh, podcast. I've kind of, I'm, I'm kind of just resolved. It's like, a, you know month and a half, two months. It's okay. We're just storing up the stories. Uh, I don't think we had to work really hard to store up the stories no. today because there's always in, you know, six or eight weeks, basically eight weeks, there's always enough things going on out there. Uh, it's not like all of a sudden it's like, oops, everybody is secure. That's not all we talk about. So, you know, there's some, some other opportunities there, but Christian, we got a bunch of stories. So what do you think? What do you think you want to lead out with today? I don't know. I feel like Probably on the time horizon, people are just coming off the heels of automatically being rebooted for some wormable uh, like viruses, and or uh, that's a contradiction, but um, worms in uh, Microsoft's RDS protocol. So it's kind of interesting to me. We can quickly recap it. Essentially, um, two known CVEs against something that had originally come out in May. Um, that was coined blue keep and essentially their protocol their protocol vulnerabilities in um, the rds component themselves and they're all remote code execution which is super exciting um, this is what you know in part makes them uh, wormable um, and and you know it's bad when um, even things going back to windows xp were getting patched vulnerabilities for uh related-like incidents that Microsoft had. Uh, we can quantitatively assess how bad of a month it was at Redmond this month by the fact that August's security release was 93 updates for Patch Tuesday on August 2019, and those were 93 security bugs, not features or other reliability or or uh, feature happiness for you. That was just plugging the holes in a sinking, leaking faucet ship. Um, so pretty interesting. Um, I've been deploying most of my Windows 10 environments at this point to um, delay feature updates for as long as possible and only take the security updates. So um, pretty much the only time I reboot in a fast-like manner is when it, a security channel update like this comes out. And yeah, definitely wanted to get it patched and get it rebooted. Uh, otherwise, I try and stay as far behind the feature chain as possible. We've seen repeated cases where that's gone really badly for people, um, especially related to, you might have to fill in my memory blocks here, Jim, but 
some one of the updates that came out recently basically fixed some things and in turn broke a lot of other things, including the ability to launch uh, Visual Basic scripts, which sounds like an old monolithic dinosaur until you realize that most of Microsoft Office on your desktop is uh, one giant monolithic, scary backend Visual Basic-like thing. Um, so when you want to run that macro in your Excel document and you can't run your Visual Basic whatever, um, probably not going to work out for you. But also there's uh, there's other core services on your operating system and um, com applications that are very well known for using uh, Visual Basic scripts in the like. So the fact that that functionality just kind of went out from under the rug was pretty interesting. Um, Getting back to the blue key vulnerability itself really quick. Um, essentially, it's the classic keep overflow type vulnerability where in this specific instance, they're playing around with the data channels in the RDS protocol. So you get you know, X number of channels for data, X number of channels for pixels, et cetera, et cetera. And what they were basically able to discover is that if you change the mapping of what is going over a particular one of those channels, um, you're, you're able to get that uh, heap to um, overflow and get into the remote executable territory. So that's the uh, vector in the front door. Pretty common vector, I would say. Uh, somewhat creative that someone is going back and playing with data channels um, in the RDS protocol. I mean, keep in mind that you know, RDP has been allowed very, very early in the Microsoft operating system stack. So it's pretty interesting that we're seeing the types of vulnerabilities we're seeing now is in stuff that's been like ancient, but still modernly maintained and updated, right? So RDP is a very classic example of that. You can go back and get RDP as early as Windows NT4, I think, um, definitely by Windows 2000. So you're talking close to a 20-year history of the protocol being used in enterprise production and many, many different versions of that software over the years, all relying on the same fundamental improvements of the original RDS protocol. Um, so pretty interesting. Um, I would say on the order of magnitude of scary, uh, this is a moderate high, um, leaning more towards the high than moderate, uh, especially because it's, it's remotely executable, especially because it's not really clear to me that you can do updates safely anymore in the operating system and come back to a state where everything works. Um, and, you know, additionally, I think to Microsoft's credit by having the security channel set up the way that they do for Windows updates, more or less, if you're using the latest approved Microsoft cookie cutter environment, you're going to get that patch pretty fast. Um, it's not clear that there was any ability to leverage this in the wild, which is a great success story because it could have been pretty damaging. Um, but the, Original scan of it, I suppose, from 250,000 public internet-facing internet assets um, suggested about 0.36% uh, of the internet would be exposed to these vulnerabilities. So um, this is pretty small in comparison to over 3% that were exposed to the original Blue Keep um, 
disclosure, which came back out in May, targeted operating systems through Windows 8, I want to say. I don't think that one included 10. Um, and again, larger blast radius in terms of what it would have impacted. So uh, pretty, pretty interesting. It reminds me in some ways of um, classifying it similar to how other ransomware has spread. Uh, this obviously isn't ransomware, but certainly um, it would be a very convenient vector for someone to use an RCE like this to load ransomware on a machine. Um, so definitely the wormable aspect here resonates pretty well with some of the other ransomware we've seen. Um, but also there's plenty of security experts that are saying now that um, Windows Defender as its iteration in Windows 10 with all of the cloud-based AV that goes on behind the scenes, it's actually one of the best antivirus in terms of just performance and defense that is in the Windows ecosystem uh, built in. And that includes the ransomware checker that's now a part of Windows Defender. So I would say the security system ecosystem for the average user here is definitely evolving a lot in Windows 10 for the better, while at the same time we're seeing what seems to be like a uh, increased rate of just vulnerability or disclosure one after another. Uh, definitely 93 security bugs in a one month patch update release cycle is not a great headline. Um, it's going to be interesting to see if that rate levels off any or continues to be where it's at right now. Yes, yeah, it sounds like somebody got really active. You know, it was kind of like. Yeah. Like all of a sudden, I mean, I haven't seen that many. And I, in every month, there's quite a few. I mean, I think if you go back, it's not it's not unprecedented to be in the 30s, 40s, and 50s of things that are found. Kenneth asked this question uh, out in the chat room. He says, "Who who discovers these? Does Microsoft have a white hat team? I'm sure there's researchers that disclose, but how's that work, Christian?" Yeah, absolutely. So you can kind of imagine there are dedicated teams that are dedicated to doing red team like stuff in a authorized kind of secure manner, especially when it comes to looking at things that are that have that large blast radius impact. So for example, US CERT, which is a sub department of DHS has dedicated people that are focused on um, discussing and searching and working towards finding these types of vulnerabilities. Then you have your response organization like MSRC, which is Microsoft Security Response Center, that when they get a report from something like US CERT or whoever the originator is that discovers it, um, they're able to then research and validate the validity of that statement. Um, so actually the original Blue Keep security vulnerability that, that this one is quite like um, was first found in the UK National Cybersecurity Center and then reported to Microsoft. Um, so it's, it was named Blue Keep by the security expert who found it, Kevin Beaumont. Um, and, you know, obviously it was given a CVE when it was publicly disclosed, but there is, you know, a national organization behind it, in this case in the UK, that disclosed it. These folks are dedicated to doing this type of research on an ongoing basis. Um, and both um, Microsoft and um, NSA contributed to the analysis. Um, NSA posted an advisory. The CERT Coordination Center posted an advisory. So there are other uh, organizations, both uh, governmental organizations and private research firms that are 
constantly evaluating the security posture of these things and then hopefully responsibly disclosing them as soon as possible. Then the CV comes, the CVE comes out. And by the time that embargo is lifted, you have your security patches ready to roll and Microsoft's there saying, hey, reboot your computer now so that it can't be exploited in the wild. Yeah. Yeah. Not a non-zero day is the best, uh, the best policy to have there, right? Um, yep. So Joe mentions, he says he's run a, he's come across clients with Windows servers with public interfaces to RDP enabled. If I'm the average user and I have not exposed RDP to the internet, so to speak. So I run RDP here, but I just use it in bet- on my own network so I can log in. I've got some servers that are on the other side of the room and I just want to log mm-hmm. in. I'm assuming I'm okay there or do I need to be worried? Yeah, absolutely. So really in that part, that part partly measures into that statistic about, I think 0.36% would have been directly impacted by this on day one. There's a really big difference between when you run a server RDP that's bound to a public IP address and when you're running RDP behind a NAT gateway with some restrictions on it, right? So for example, if you're RDPing from one computer in your house to another, chances are you're doing that over the local area network using local DNS, local IP address space. This isn't going to be a problem for you unless you have a malicious actor sitting in your bedroom or sitting in the street trying to uh, road warrior your Wi-Fi. Um, absolutely, though, if either through uh, NAT port forwarding or directly uh, bound to a server with a public IP address, you are exposing the RDP port that immediately puts you at increased risk in general. I mean, regardless of if there's an RCE or not, uh, especially if you're not protecting yourself from brute force of, of weak passwords. Um, so there's this element of how strong is your organization's password security policy? How many attempts does a user get to log in in your organization before that account gets locked out and suspended? So if you're running like a small business-like environment where A, you're not auditing what connections are getting open to 3389, which is where RDP runs. Two, you're not um, enforcing any kind of credential policy or um, lifecycle policy on login attempts. And three, you're not doing um, audit logging and access control remediation to ensure that um, only the proper people are using those credentials over that port. Um, If you're really going to expose RDP services over the public internet, you absolutely must have very strong audit compliance, very short um, credential attempts, and um, taking a serious look at two uh, forms of two-factor authentication, which by default, if you're a small to medium business and you're just trying to use the regular RDP, going to be a little bit hard to do, right? You have to build in some authentication architecture behind the scenes and kind of build out your enterprise stack, so to speak, in order to support a two-factor like authentication over your AD infrastructure through RDP. Um, So depends what kind of organization, what you look like. Certainly, if you think about something like server essentials or, or Windows Home Server, any of those types of environments where remote desktop is basically vended over a security gateway. So that's a whole different thing where essentially you're first connecting over an SSH tunnel to an HTTPS like website domain. And that is basically then proxying the RDP connection for you. That's a different scenario because you're not exposing the RDP protocol and port directly on the internet. 
internet. You basically have to log into that website first, download a file that allows you to open a gate and a RDP gateway. And then once you've brokered that connection, you're definitely one step removed from the problem. So you'll see a lot of enterprise organizations have some kind of remote access gateway provided by Microsoft uh, technologies that um, helps you do all those things I talked about as best practice when you're going to go to RDP on the public internet. But certainly I've seen it. A lot of other security engineers have seen it. There are plenty of organizations today um, that put like personal computers and also public servers and otherwise, they plug them in the wall. They don't realize that's public IP space. They don't necessarily realize what type of ACLs are in place on those network switches. And they may be inadvertently exposing that RDP port without even knowing it. And then you're at the mercy of your local Windows operating system or server operating system to defend against that. And that's the la that's like the worst place you want to be. If you're getting all the way down to the actual thing that you're going to connect to as a destination in RDP uh, as your last line of defense, you're missing probably five to 10 uh, things in front of that to keep that connection safe. Christian, if I were, if I had virtual servers on Azure AWS, so to speak, I'm running Windows, are those exposing RDP or does it just depend on how it's set up? Uh, to begin with to get access to those. Yeah, absolutely. So uh, if you spin up an AWS instance and it's a Windows type instance, definitely you're exposing the RDP port. Uh, a couple interesting things to note. One, there's a certificate involved. So you can validate that the port you're connecting to is what it says it is based on the certificate that's bound to that EC2 instance. Um, secondly, um, the passwords that are generated are very strong, very long. Um, and scope to specific accounts. So uh, you sh shouldn't find yourself in a situation where someone could be brute forcing your RDP very easily um, because it's a very strong password. In addition, the only way you can retrieve that password after you initially launch your instance is essentially to secure it with a SSH key. Um, so what that means is you have to upload a PEM file to EC2 that basically says, hey, retrieve me the Windows administrator password for this instance. I can then use that with RDP. Uh, and, and third, when you spin up an EC2 instance, you control what VPC it goes into and you control whether or not you have a floating public IP address that's bound over that VPC. So if you're an enterprise organization and you're spinning up and down EC2 instances, you should be looking at what are your default VPC security settings and what subnets or IP address ranges am I allowing to connect to that 3389 port? Definitely not recommended to just leave it open to the world. Certainly if you do, you're probably in a little bit better of a place than some organizations, um, but you're pretty much right off the bat, you have the opportunity to secure that VPC with the correct inbound uh, firewall rules such that you should only you you should immediately be able to block out ninety percent of the noise just by having only your organization and your organization's IP addresses be able to hit that port, and then the rest of it you're leaving to that strong authenticator and strong access retrieval. I'm trying to think back to my Azure days when I had uh, when I had Azure access through my MVP credentials, I think I would need to I could spin up an instance an RDP or a you know a, a box whether it's a server or a desktop, and of course I'm connecting to it that way, but I would have to, 
I can't authenticate through Azure to be able to get to that box, uh, get in and log in, use password on that one there. I'm assuming, and Joe says also VPN plus RDP, right? And it was as we think about another way of, of uh, I, I think he's referring to another way of, of thinking about this. Um, but I'm I'm assuming like on the Azure side, that's kind of add that extra layer of security because I'm logging into the website and creating a portal. Uh, you know, I'm, I'm having to log into their portal, which is creating another credential. It's doing its thing, and then allowing me to access to RDP. Certainly, these are not going to be, if I have an instance spun up on Azure, these are not going to necessarily just be automatically exposed to a public IP, right? Am I, am I correct in assuming that? Yeah, I actually, I can't speak as well to uh, Azure as, as the AWS environment, but um, I will say that at the end of the day, an EC2 instance, or, or I'm sorry, a Windows, a Windows box as a virtual machine, a Windows VM is a Windows VM. So once it's provisioned and I have access to it, and you as a cloud provider are supposed to allow me to configure my network however I want it to be configured, whether that's secure, insecure, or otherwise, um, you should eventually be able to get to a place where your Windows Azure-based instance has direct access to um, expose the RDP port if you've configured it that way. Okay. I just don't know what out of the default, out of the box looks like for an Azure host. Yeah. Um, I got lucky. Well, I shouldn't say lucky. So I was out of town this week when this patch came out. It doesn't matter. I'm not running that here. So I'm not necessarily that footprint. I don't, you know, I don't uh, use a remote desktop to access my computers from outside. So not a problem there. But all of them took the update. So I left early Tuesday morning and all of them took the update, rebooted, and then got went right back into where they were supposed to be. You know, I've got things running on them for for um, crypto purposes, and they went right back to work. So whatever I did, I've configured them. Finally, I've <laughs> configured my desktops that when they get an update, reboot. I've got some software, you know, that restarts everything after a, you know, there it's set to restart after a crash. But a reboot to them is a crash. So fires back up, logs back in to finish the updates. Because it's logged back in, it fires back up the the um, the executables that I had running, and everything came back up. It was you know, funny. Ken, who's in the chat room, sent me a note, and he was like, um, "Hey, <laughs> it worked." <laughs> I was like, "Sweet, three boxes, all three rebooted. Uh, it worked out pretty well for me, not being here." So, um, so that was a great thing. When we think of Team Viewer, then uh, to, you know, T, uh, Ken, who I just mentioned. Uh, said in the chat room. So team team viewer for the win in this case. And it, is that really the right? I mean, there are things we need RDP for, right? I mean, people rely on that or maybe they just want to don't want to be beholden to team viewer. Yeah, team viewer. Uh, <laughs> they've had their own problems. I've yeah, this is convenient timing, actually. Um, so in like the last week, team viewer. Well, so team viewer is owned by Microsoft now. So of course, all good things. Oh yeah, oh. all good things. I believe so. Let's let's make sure before I speak blasphemy on air. But I believe, I believe TeamViewer has been owned by Microsoft for quite some time. Um, but in any case, um, all all good things. Oh, you you might be right. I, I don't know. Um, well, it says Durham. The GFI yeah. software owns the Durham, North Carolina-based company. GFI software acquired a majority stake in TeamViewer in two thousand. Ten that doesn't okay. anything. Hold it. You keep talking, and I'll yeah, I'll, I'll yeah. So, someone's gonna have to edit this part. Oh. <laughs> no. So, 
um, you know, essentially, uh, in the last two weeks, team viewer has told me that I am a quote commercial user, um, for attempting to log back into my desktop through team viewer. I mean, I'm a, I've been a power user of team viewer for quite some time. Uh, clearly those days are waning. Um, I'm not really interested in fighting a technical war with team viewer support about their commercial versus non-commercial use policy. Um, I know I'm not violating their terms of service, but their automated system uh, disagrees. Um, it really only takes connecting from one set of IP addresses or sources that they associate with something being commercial um, for you to start having problems uh, with, with TeamViewer. So the latest edition of TeamViewer is very aggressive when it comes to um, how it constitutes your connection as being commercial versus residential versus for-profit versus not-for-profit. Um, TLDR, I think TeamViewer is probably, for the average guy at least, on the waning path, if if TeamViewer continues this trend with with their service usage metrics, is probably on the waning path for uh, not being super reliable for a power user like myself. Um, that said, probably still a good solution for the time being for most who are not running into this issue. But you can go read pages and pages of threads on the TeamViewer community forums of people who are coming up with this uh, commercial usage issue and. Um, again, it's not the fact that you're necessarily using it commercially. Uh, they look at how you're connecting to and from. So I'm personally getting to a point where uh, there's not a value proposition anymore. Definitely used to offer and provide a lot of value as a free service. Um, I think other things like Chrome Remote Desktop are going to win out, uh, which makes me cringe because uh, what do I want to do but turn around and advise people to use more Google, Google products? But uh, here we are. So uh, not clear that there really is a front runner when it comes to I'm an average guy that wants to do average things, but wants to have remote desktop access, doesn't want to pay an enterprise license for it because that's not what I'm using it for. Uh, that's getting a little bit trickier, um, I would say, than than where we were a couple of years ago. I thought we were past that, but I'm not convinced we are. Yeah, Ken, Ken says uh, Chrome Remote Desktop has gotten much better in the past eight months for him, and he's been using that. But again, there is, you know, it's interesting. I'm hearing more and more skepticism on the Google side these days. They used to be the oh, darlings, yeah. and and everybody rushed to them. I mean, think about the Chrome adoption and all those pieces. But but boy, boy, there's cracks in that infrastructure over there. Um, yeah. On the team viewer side, they are uh, they are a German company. Uh, they have had two outside investments since 2010. The Durham, North Carolina-based company GFI Software acquired a majority stake in team viewer in 2010. And then the London-based private equity firm of uh, Primera took over GFI stake on team viewer in 2014. That's right from their ever so accurate Wikipedia page. Interesting. That's the best place to find it. So. Um, I, I don't disagree with you, Christian, that uh, they have gotten more uh, uh, vigilant and aggressive yeah. on requiring. I, I, I Somehow I've been uh, using it, sneaking through a little bit of their web client. Uh, so I don't actually have it installed, but I'm using their web client. I've got a few computers that I still access that way that I've gone through, pulled them up, used them, and I have not gotten that message. So seemingly on the website, if you're connecting that way, it's a little less aggressive. I haven't got any notices and I've been doing it a bunch. 
Um, I haven't got any notices from them on their, from their client. That's really where you get it, right? That client piece. And so I don't know if that's a loophole in there or what, but when I, when I need to get my mom's computer a little bit of oomph, I can do it through the web client on my side. She's got a version installed there and I can connect to it in remote control just enough to get it done. But you're absolutely right. It is kind of messy. Chrome, got to worry about Google a little bit. There's really, well, I guess, Log me in? Is that probably the other one that's yeah, out there? And I don't think they're fully um I don't think they're fully a free service either, in the sense that I know they I'm pretty sure they have many different commercial editions of their product. Yeah, so yeah. Well, log me in has also been a company that's been bolted together like Frankenstein. So there's a yeah. bunch of different companies and, and that were put together um uh, to get that done. So for for most, as we kind of wrap this story up, for most, unless they've got a server that's being exposed to a public IP address, they're using RDP behind their own firewall using pub, using private addresses, right? 174, 192, something along those lines. In this case, they patched, you're good, shouldn't have to worry about it. To this point, would that would that be a correct assumption? Yeah, pretty much. If you've if you've done your, your your windows patches and you're, you're rebooted. You're pretty okay. much good to go. Um, okay, cool. I think that's, I think for most people, I think the question is just make sure if you're blocking updates for whatever reason, and you're in that situation where you're using RDP and any, you should do this anyways, get out there, get those 93 updates from last week. Uh, get that done. I think uh, maybe burying the lead a little bit, Christian, of course, was the Capital One uh, breach from a couple weeks ago. Um, I think it's uh, I, I think it's important that we're super clear on this one, right? Uh, and and we're super clear about uh, why we're talking about it. It was a breach. It did affect people. We talk about that here on the show um, all the time. I'm going to let you. I want because of because of the nature of what you do and your work. I want to make sure we handle this correctly. I'll let you talk a little bit about. Let's get the disclosures out there so folks know um, as we're talking about this. But give us a, a little bit of what happened and maybe why it happened. Yeah. So the the high level summary is that uh, Capital One reported a data breach uh, disclosure of about 106 million or so records, I believe, from their credit application. Um, uh, service. So particularly when applying for a new credit card or a credit limit increase, they collect data like your name, your address, uh, information about your income history, your credit worthiness, et cetera. Um, essentially, Capital One is a huge um, customer of cloud. Um, they're a large customer of AWS. Uh, and so when this breach got disclosed, I was reported in uh, public news that essentially a, a former AWS employee um, was involved in leaking this data on the internet, right? So um, she was arrested by the FBI in Seattle. Uh, it turns out about a week ago that she's also connected to over 30 other instances of uh, exploiting different companies' data. So uh, she seems to have a pretty large track record here. Um, the thing to get really like crystal clear on here, um, and because I'm speaking in a personal capacity, not representing Amazon in any way, uh, I will just read what Amazon said in their press statement and leave it at that, uh, which is that, quote, uh, AWS was not compromised in any way and functioned as designed. 
the perpetrator gained access through a misconfiguration of the web application and not the underlying cloud-based infrastructure. Um, as Capital One clearly explains in its disclosure, this disclosure, this type of vulnerability is not specific to the cloud. Uh, so really important here, this kind of drives home something that maybe we haven't talked as much about on this show, but is really uh very much at the front and center when we talk about shared security models. So the cloud is the central nexus of the shared security model. The, the model basically asserts that both parties coming to the table must provide secure, secure solutions. So the underlying infrastructure and the basic building blocks that a cloud infrastructure provider like Amazon or Microsoft or Google provides you should be inherently secure widely configurable, able to meet uh, customer needs and expectations. Um, you compare that with, um, you compare that with what the customer has to bring to the table, which is they're allowed to use these fundamentally secure bl building blocks. They must be responsible in how they configure them. Their application must be secure on top of that secure cloud infrastructure, right? So if I'm a web programmer, and I buy a virtual machine in a cloud company infrastructure, and I want to run a website, that's great. Um, if I code a bad PHP plugin, for example, on my WordPress instance, who's responsible for that? Well, the developer who wrote the bad plugin that's running on otherwise secure infrastructure would be responsible in that case. But let's say I am a PHP developer for WordPress plugins and I wrote a great plugin and I deploy it in a cloud infrastructure environment where um, customers are able to have their data leaked out by some type of remote execution vulnerability that takes advantage of bad file permissions or a bad security model on the virtual machine where that web server runs. Well, yeah, then my cloud provider would be responsible for that, right? So both parties must come to the table with um, a security-driven policy. If if any one fails, both fail, right? So in terms of the overall, did it work or did it not work? The outcome is it didn't work. Um, when we talk about assigning blame or doing a risk audit analysis or root causing these types of failures, there was nothing here in this disclosure that said... Um, AWS XYZ component was insecure in some way, and that's why the Capital One breach happened. It was very much, no, there was a, a known misconfiguration that was part of the Capital One ecosystem within this cloud environment. And that's really what's being focused on in this, this disclosure. Um, at the end of the day, if this was removed from a conversation about shared security model and there was no cloud provider at all, it was just Capital One running on their own data centers and they, they had this kind of disclosure, it would be pretty much the same level of severity and impact to customers as it is today, right? So the fact that this happened in a secure cloud environment, same impact as if this had happened in Capital One's secure data centers, right? Uh, the impact was those 106 million people, some type of PII disclosed, no social security numbers from what I recall, or if there were, it was a pretty small percentage of that 106 million. Um, obviously, Capital One prides itself on being a technology company as a bank. So for them, they did the right thing in how they followed the disclosure, how they responded to the incident. Like I thought it was pretty professional how they responded to it. Ultimately, at the end of the day, not 
anywhere near the type of consequential data breaches we've seen in the past few years. Um, so yes, this generated a lot of buzz because it's a bank and then you see a big cloud provider and you see all these things coming together under one umbrella headline and it seems like some major security event. Um, but th there's a lot of data here that should make you feel like this isn't as big as what it was hyped up to be. I think the interesting thing as I as I um, watched this unfold was not the organization or the cloud provider, but the hacker themselves. Like yeah. I, it was super comical how she had boasted about this on Reddit mm -hmm. or I think mm -hmm. in a public forum. Yeah. She has something going on. Being very um, kind of, I mean, not, I mean, and caught fairly easily yep. it was not and i believe she know. pretty much rolled over and admitted it as soon as the fbi came knocking so <laughs> I, I don't know what that tells you really i don't no um, no super interesting i think it uh, says i mean it's uh, i mean if there's you know if you're gonna be a, if you're gonna be a hacker you probably gotta be a little more you gotta be a little more careful uh or uh, maybe a little sneaky um than that it sounded like a pretty a, a fairly easy based on our inside information a fairly easy exploit without a lot of necessarily hacking going involved. Uh, so maybe some inside knowledge of some things helped out. And that's not, I mean, I don't know. So um, I think this is, they're, 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 um, I think they're going to throw the book at her in a lot of ways and they're going to make an example of this in even more. And so I think it could be interesting to follow this through, through the court cases and to see what it'll take a while probably for it to get all the way through. It is uh, when we think about, banks and and we think credit with with the recent credit hacks that have gone on with Experian and such there is a little bit of fatigue for the consumer to be like great another free year of credit protection because they always offer that right yep um, on things like this another free year of credit protection but that in an offer and I think in an offer to pay some retribution if if their credit is indeed used fraudulently and you got to do a lot of work in an experience case, like it was almost impossible to show the proof that something did happen to you to be able to claim that, right? That right. on the, on the heels of this happening, Experian has settled as well. Right. And they have said, okay, you're going to get 125 bucks or something like That's that. Right. So, so that one's actually interesting because the way that works there is, the way they did the class action lawsuit for Experian, there's kind of two buckets you fall in. If you don't have existing credit protection, meaning like you weren't impacted by some other breach yet, or you already pay for credit protection, whatever it is, um, I think you must take the one year free credit protection that Experian was offering. If, and only if, you already have a credit protection monitoring service, which is true for many of us, then um, you're entitled to the payout of $125. The catch is the more people that know about the class action lawsuit and then the more people that qualify for the cash payout election instead of getting the free credit protection, that $125 per person amount whittles down, right? Because the settlement is for a fixed pool of money. It's not 125 times the number of people that show up eligible. It's no X millions of dollars divided by the number of people that show up. So like by default, yeah, that was probably $125, but then it went viral and everyone was like, get your free paycheck. Uh, we had people on Capitol Hill actually tweeting, get, get your free paycheck uh, with respect to the Experian uh, disclosure. Yeah. I'll leave that for what it is. Right. Um, so at the end of the day, maybe that's like $5 in your pocket. Maybe that's a 
cup of coffee at Starbucks? I don't really know. Yeah. Uh, certainly sound. It certainly sounds like it's going to be a lot less bigger than you know a nice little hundred twenty five dollar check showing up in your mail, which quite honestly wouldn't be an all that unfair price for the level of uh, neglect associated with a one of the tri state credit bureau applications kind of failing at their primary mission in a beautiful way. Yeah. So. Well, and you know, for the last 10 or 15 years or so, you know, there's just been an assault on that kind of credit information, whether it be social security number, like I'm pretty sure my social security number is public, like at this point, or email addresses. Well, I know my Yahoo account has been compromised about 16 times already. It's really just a spammer account at this point. I, I you know, I send things there that I don't really, you know, for, for uh, mailing lists and things like that. The, um, I mean, now my public, my where I live, pretty public, um, you know. So it's it is one of those things. I think, and and I thought we would have done this by now, but I think we need a new system. Like we need a more secure way of identifying people of that of it it, it being you know those transactions being qualified and you know it, it, it almost like I need two factor before any kind of financial transaction is allowed for me and anywhere and um, you know, where I can, it's going to notify me and say, and I know that's what this credit protection stuff is supposed to do, but doesn't seem, doesn't seem to be working. And um, I, I feel like we're going to need a new financial system of some kind, you know, don't you think? Or, or, or people are just going to become very comfortable with the part where things once public are now, or once private are now just public news yeah. and must protect them. Yeah, well, but I think before I lend out money or before I allow transactions to happen, we got to come up with a better authentication system that doesn't require some of those things that are public or whatever. I mean, because it's still happening. Um, I mean, people's identities are still being stolen at a ridiculous rate. And it doesn't seem like it's as high profile as it was at some point. Um, it seemed like there I saw some ridiculous numbers there of saying the number of people every year that was being done. I haven't heard that in a while. So maybe it's slowing down a little bit. I don't know. Maybe we're kind of figuring it out, but I think we've got a little bit of, I think we have a little bit of work to do and I'd love to see some um, innovation around this idea coming out of the tech sector to say, Hey, here's a way, you know, uh, here's a way for that to be secure or more secure in some way so that, that transaction, whatever it is, is absolutely, you know, qualified in some way, uh, however that is. I don't know. I don't know how we get anything else you want to add to that. No, I think that's, that's pretty, pretty good summary. Um, I love the name of this next uh, one. Blue Tana. Is that uh, so meet Blue Tana, the scourge of pump skimmers. Yeah. This one's actually kind of interesting to me for uh, two reasons. Well, probably one, Yeah, but um, one is that people like cared about this enough to make an app. I think that's pretty cool. <laughs> um, there, there's some caveats I have to it. Like I'm trying to envision like, you know, your average Joe being like, Oh, let me pull out my app and scan the gas pump before using it. Uh, I think it's kind of cool though, from a researchy perspective that, um, you know, someone just went and did this. Uh, of course it's a, computer scientist from university that did this thing. So it kind of fits that researchy prototype. Well, but this is uh, what I'm mantra. talking about. Like somebody cared about a problem and was like, dang it, I'm going to come yeah. up with a computer science way of fixing it. Absolutely. Now I will, I will say that the, the intriguing aspect of this is that I'm increasingly 
as a customer only choosing to shop at gas station pumps that support Apple Pay. Um, so this actually turns out to be Sunoco, which most of the Sunoco pumps in the DC area, you can just put up your phone and Apple Pay. So I don't have to worry about a card skimmer. And that's pretty awesome. Um, so while this is cool, it seems like the answer is still clear, which is get away from magnetic strips um, and these problems go away. Um, so yeah, this, the, you know, the skimmer detection, it's a cool project. It has applicability to detecting other types of Bluetooth um, intrusions potentially. But I think the longer term horizon here is we know of more secure authenticators like NFC based payment systems and we should use them. So for those wondering, Bluetan is a new mobile app that looks for Bluetooth-based payment card skimmers hidden inside cash pumps. It's helping police and state employees more rapidly and accurately locate compromised fuel stations. This, I think, is the important part. Maybe not necessarily, Christian, just for you, but in identifying or even, you know, you could kind of think, you know, your local quick trip or name the gas station, right? Could be like, I... Maybe I'm going to check every once in a while to make sure something hasn't been deployed on my own card skimmers or on my own credit card um, devices. Um, a study released this week suggests data collected at the course of the investigation also revealed some fascinating details that may help explain why these pump skimmers are so are so lucrative. Yeah, because people don't check, right? The new app being used by agencies in several states, the brainchild, and you mentioned this, computer science uh, from the University of California, San Diego, and Illinois Urbana-Champaign, Urbana who say they developed the software in tandem with the technical inputs from the U.S. Secret Service, um, who was called in to investigate these rings. This has been a problem, right? I mean, it has, yeah. been, a, it has been a big problem. And um, a, an app for either law enforcement or the gas station owners themselves to check their pumps. I mean, certainly there's got to be some financial incentive from both the credit card companies, the gas stations themselves, and law enforcement and be able to check these pretty easily. That sounds like it turns every phone, right? Any Bluetooth-enabled phone into a kind of an ID checker. Would the same yeah. thing hold true at an ATM maybe that's been compromised as well? Potentially. Yeah. Um, should be the same class of stuff. Yeah. No, I thought it was cool. That's This is the one, like, I really liked this app because I was like, I could imagine this would be me. I would I download it, use it, and then I would always just I would start driving around, trying to like in the old days when people didn't secure their Wi-Fi and it was mm -hmm. just it was easy. You know, you just road warrior, I think is what you called it, where you just pull up in front of the you know, curbs would be marked. I remember those days, right? Yeah. And nobody really cares about that anymore. But for a while, because you could do it, you would, right? This is another one of those things that I would probably put on my phone and for a weekend drive around all the gas stations here in Bellevue. Just see if any of them, right? If any of them show up on it. Uh, okay. So it sounds a little Robin Hoodish, right? From that, um, from that standpoint. So cool. Anything else on that one? Yeah, no, I think that's that's good for that one. Um, uh, speaking of that, of road wire, it's not what they called it. What they call it in the day, where you would they would you could mark things yeah, on the curb. I think um, I mangled that one. Yeah. So, anyways, the rise of bulletproof. These are all Krebs on security articles, by the way. We'll put the link to them in the show notes. And just to kind of wrap things up here, we'll we'll cover a few of these. But the rise of bulletproof residential networks is that even possible? Yeah, well, so it's kind of a misleading title, actually, which is part of the reason why I love the article, but it really dives into 
something that I've seen in my own infrastructure and have been kind of intrigued by, which is that there is a high value premium on being able to make a bunch of requests on the internet in general or send a bunch of traffic that A, is not attributable, B, can't be blocked or stopped over time because C, you've diversified the sources of where the traffic is coming from to the point where it's not like you're going to block an IP address and the pro- problem is solved, right? It's going to be uh, drips or 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 bursts of different traffic coming from a bunch of different places at once. And you're not going to have a human being involved in trying to intervene and control all of that. And the article goes to talk about this new internet provider in Maryland called Residential Networking Solutions, LLC. And they've basically bought up a bunch of previously owned IP address ranges from like uh, cell cell phone companies. So they've bought old blocks from AT&T, from Verizon, um, from Comcast, et cetera. And they now have um, more than uh, 70,000 IPv4 addresses in their little arsenal of the this ResNet network. And it's mostly like a, in a way you could think of it as like a black hat, highest bidder type network where um, people are, selling access to be able to get on and use those IP networking spaces for whatever they want it to be, whether it's botting or shoe buying or um, pushing your own online Ponzi scheme, like whatever the flavor of the day is that you want to do that, you know, the most part automated machines are going to catch up with you pretty quick. If you do it from a small set of addresses, this is like a premium um, commodity to be able to get access to this huge range of IPs that even more so don't even look like data center addresses. They're residential looking addresses. So, you know, that right there is something that will start throwing off a lot of um, automated um, defense mechanisms. So, you know, one of the little advertisements that Krebs quotes in his article is talking about uh, someone who's advertising seven-day quote trial access to a, a IP address pool of 1.2 million addresses. Um, that's absolutely de- devastating, especially if you're a small or medium-sized business and you're gonna if you get profiled and targeted and your the attack operation coming for you is coming from something like that. Good luck defending against it, right? Like it's yes, you can block out all of that. ResNet, subnet, et cetera, and start allowing back in over time. But these types of things are incredibly disruptive to day-to-day business operations, to tuning whatever automated algorithms and intrusion detection prevention systems are out there trying to help you with this problem. Um, so I was really kind of intrigued by it, mostly because, you know, bulletproof residential networks makes it sound like I as a residential customer and getting some increased security in reality, it has absolutely nothing to do with that. <laughs> it's actually the opposite, right? Yeah. In that, in that case. Um, and so blocking that, you mentioned this, but just blocking, if you're having that, is it a block of numbers that I could in, in theory block, but because they're so diverse, does that get extremely difficult? Yeah, in theory, if you knew that you were getting targeted and a lot of the addresses were coming from things that were registered in the Aaron database to um, to 
you know, this residential networking solutions LLC, in theory, you could then run a query that looks up all of the like subnet IP blocks that they own and just block the entire CIDR blocks for that, for that particular um, ASN. Um, but again, that gets a little tricky, um, especially if their ASNs are owned under multiple different, you know, shell entities for lack of a better word. All right. Things to look out for. I think we're at our time. Anything else you want to add in, Christian? By that hour goes fast. No, I think that's a wrap. Actually, the, the one thing I will add that is a trending thing when we, we've talked about crypto and blockchain quite a bit um, on the show. Uh, one of the probably the most interesting articles that caught my attention in the last month was um, IBM's development and acquisition of a blockchain-based web browser. Um, totally didn't see that coming from IBM of all places. They've been getting a little They've, innovative lately. I mean, they may not yeah, be dead yet. They, they certainly, um, caught me off guard by that for sure. Um, I, I'm not going to go so far to say it's a Watson moment yet, but it's certainly <laughs> yeah. an intriguing concept. Uh, if a player like IBM is willing to get in that space, that tells me that uh, a couple things, one, Blockchain is alive and well, and people still figuring out how it's going to actually be used in the long term. Two, um, when we talk about conversations previously on this show around who is going to be the data broker and where that power is going to be centralized around, right? Today, the internet and the World Wide Web is very much a gatekeeper model and data brokers and people in power and people not in power. Um, a blockchain-based web browser could drastically disrupt that ecosystem where new brokers of data, more decentralized data broking, um, more private internets within a public internet, for lack of a better word. Um, so, and, and then you put in, you put behind the research dollars and enterprise spin of something like IBM, this suddenly starts to smell very interesting to me. So this is a, I would say this is definitely something to watch out for as a frontier technology indicator. Um, using stuff that we know exists in the frontier spectrum today, but I think the fact that we're seeing this is a real interesting data point and we should keep our eyes on it. I don't think they planned it this way, but I think crypto uh, was a perfect kind of vetting kind of application. It had the right motivations associated with it. It kept people interested in it. There was high traffic in it kind of proved out some forking methodologies of the blockchain. Um, it it, it, it um, enforced um, transaction volumes and speeds. It made it like, you know, the initial versions of it were not scalable at all. And now we're starting to see these technologies to come along to scale that speed. Speed's important in some areas, not others, but, but it's pushing it, right? And I think as we continue... Um, to work in the crypto space. It's proving some things out. It's testing some things for us, but it's got a lot of financial incentive. And so it goes, it moves very, very fast in its testing. And yeah. and there's some, there's some ramifications behind it. And listen, people have lost real money and have gained real money in this thing. I, I hate to think of, I wonder what, if we thought about all the millions of dollars or maybe billions at this point, that has changed hands and you kind of think, I wonder what has been gained and lost. It's probably not trackable, but, but I do think crypto is a good, is a good use case in the very beginning to, to prove all this stuff out. 
that we'll all benefit from this 20 years from now when sure crypto will always be a part of the blockchain, but I think there's going to be some really good applications that come along that take advantage of the, the blockchain idea and, uh, in, and make good use of it. And there's, there's a lot of great security things built into it. That could be pretty great, uh, moving forward that could help us solve some real problems. And yeah. so I, um, I, it's excited to see where it goes. Crypto's a little bit of a uh, QA, uh, you know, <laughs> on it. Kind of like, hey, is this thing going to really work? Trust me, Christian, if there wasn't any financial incentive in this, nobody would do it. Like, mm-hmm. it just wouldn't be interesting. If there was no crypto in blockchain, blockchain would still be where it was nine years ago or 10 years ago. Kind of, kind of a, well, I, I think this should work, you know. Um, the yeah. money aspect has really driven it pretty fast. So I, I think we have we have crypto to thank for that. In the long run, there'll always be some kinds of crypto applications. It just makes sense. It's a great it's a great transfer of value type tool. Um, but interesting to see IBM jump into it. They have made some interesting acquisitions over the last couple, maybe year or 18 months, which kind of go, hmm, lights are still kind of on over there. Like, hmm. Okay, we're we're yeah. you know hmm. didn't yeah, see that I, one. I gotta coming. be honest. Yeah, yeah, not not a not a space I expected I'd no. to be in. No, I don't think they're launching rockets. So not yet, not yet. You never know. So let's, let's not get carried away. But uh, they're doing some interesting things from that. Well, with that, I'll remind everyone the Average Guy TV is powered by Maple Grove Partners. Get secure, reliable, high speed hosting from people that you know and you trust. WordPress optimized, lightning fast. Check out maplegrovepartners.com. We welcome your questions. If you want to send those in, kind of stump Christian on something, or you'd like us to talk about something that you'd like to hear, send us an email, jim at theaverageguy.tv. Better just to send it over to Christian, christian at theaverageguy.tv. You can find me on Twitter at Jay Collison. You can find him on Twitter. Yeah, let's get that, get that right. You can find him on Twitter over at uh, Board Whisperer. We hope you enjoyed it. We'd love to have you share it. We'll be back in about three years with that. A couple weeks with the next Cyber Frontiers. With that, we'll say goodbye, everybody. Good night, everyone.